Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with writer Sandra Cisneros. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming here tonight. If you all could just take a moment to check your cell phones and make sure they're on vibrate, because we're going to be recording this conversation for uh, potential future broadcasts on our podcasts and on public radio stations. I tried to take Sandra's purses, and she said this is how she loses them, so she wouldn't give it to me. (laughs) Smart woman. So my name is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Lily Percy. Um, I am executive producer here at On Being Studios. I'm also a very proud board member of Centro Tirón Guzmán, and they are the organization that we are all honoring here tonight as part of the Day of the Dead celebration. Um, I won't say too much, uh, but I just want to share a little bit about my experience with Centro, which has been uh, transformative. I moved here six years ago, and I started volunteering with them I think a little bit over three years, and they have given me a home. They really have. Um, I try not to get too emotional. Um, I am Colombian-American, and, and when I moved here, it was really hard transition uh, to find community. And Centro, if you have the privilege of ever going to Centro, you will immediately feel at home. As soon as you walk in, you feel the love and the kindness and the intention that everyone who works there puts into every part of their job. All the teenagers are here representing. <laughs> and they're just one, one part of, of the folks that make up the community of Centro that I hope you get to meet tonight and be introduced to. And so I, I can truly say that my life has been both changed and Centro has just been a gift to me. So um, I just want to introduce Roxana Linares, the executive director of Centro. Hi, buenas noches, good evening. I have like 20 pages of it. No, just kidding. (laughs) I want to start by honoring the communities that walked these lands um, and that continue to take care of them, the Ojibwe and the Dakota of Minnesota. It is such a privilege to have Sandra Cisneros tonight here. Uh, Thank you so much for telling the stories that need to be told, the stories of wisdom and of hope. Your writing has inspired so many young Latinos to be strong and proud of who they are. Things like the ones we have here from Centro Tyrone Guzman, who are brilliant, inquisitive, creative, sometimes shy, sometimes very bold. Uh, teens that have created uh, the recipes of the salsa that you have at the table. Uh, They did the marketing, and now they are very happy to share it with you. Uh, The salsa is is called Hecho con Raices, and I hope that you enjoy it very much. And all the proceeds of the salsa go to the program uh, for the teens. And they keep us on our toes, challenging us to walk the talk, whether it is on inclusion of the LGBTQ plus community or questioning the stereotypes that we have. 
uh, all to make Centro a more welcoming environment for everyone. Centro was founded in 1974 by Marcela Trujillo, a poet and activist, a Chicana, an academic. Uh, she worked at the University of Minnesota in the Chicano studies. And she worked with a group of volunteers to support Latino families, uh, moms, their children, their grandparents. And then, like now, our, our programs are for the whole family and serve all generations. So we encourage and support our families to help change systems and structures and behaviors that perpetuate inequities. Mothers in our leadership program have met with uh, teachers, with directors, with legislators to advocate for changes in the school system and to make, make it better for Latinos and other minorities. And elders and caregivers of um, elders with Alzheimer's have guided us to prepare a memory book that provides tools to engage and support people with memory loss. And we are honored to have the trust of families, families like Hector and Dorita. Uh, Dorita has Alzheimer's, and as the uh, sickness progressed, Hector uh, seeked support to help her. So he came uh, to Central Tyrone Guzman, and he learned a lot of the tools that he's using to, to support Dorita. But also, Dorita comes to our Montessori-influenced uh, adult daycare uh, in the mornings to work with staff, and we are helping her engage her brain so that the memory loss is slower. And Hector has the opportunity to socialize, to learn, to share his experiences as well. So we are very proud that our families uh, provide us that trust and that we are able to work with them. Uh, elders also are creating a micro-enterprise following the teens from uh, Raices, and they are creating handmade educational materials for our Siembra Montessori Early Learning Center. Uh, children in Siembra love to spend time with the elders, and of course now having the material in the classroom made by their abuelitos is going to make their experience so much more enjoyable and so much better uh, for everyone. Uh, all Siembra children graduate ready to read uh, for kindergarten, but most importantly, we think that they are ready for life. And we have some of the Siembra teachers here, and it's really such a, an honor for me to work with such dedicated uh, professionals. Over the coming year, one of our greatest opportunities is to expand uh, Siembra Montessori. We are planning to build a second classroom for our children. Currently, we have 100 children in our waiting list. So when we open the second classroom in 2021, we'll be able to serve them, their uh, brothers and sisters, their parents, and their grandparents as well. Uh, families in all our programs help us to create and celebrate important cultural events like today, the Day of the Dead. And if you have the opportunity to visit uh, Mia this Friday for Family Night Out, uh, you'll enjoy the altar created by Monica Vega, who is uh, here. <laughs> so kudos to Monica. <laughs> I'm 
she created the altar again with the little ones. The Siembra children were preparing beautiful flowers. The teens did amazing nichos that are in the altar. And the elders also helped with flowers. So as you can see, this is a family business, but we are not like the mob. So <laughs> it's all for a very good cause. And I also want to thank uh, Lily and all the Unbeing staff who have been so kind and supportive, and they worked so hard to make this event uh, possible. Uh, also, central staff that have been so supportive of all the events that we are uh, having and hosting this week. But most importantly, we want to thank Krista, I'm like the biggest fan ever for years. <laughs> Followed her. <laughs> Krista, thank you so much for inviting Sandra and for sharing your wisdom, both of you, uh, in this beautiful conversation that you are going to have now. Uh, and to end, I want to thank you all for coming, and I hope you enjoy this beautiful conversation. And thank you for supporting Centro as well. I am so happy to welcome everyone, and we are so thrilled and honored to, to first of all, celebrate the Day of the Dead here in our space for the first time, um, and to, 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 be, to ex extend this hospitality to Centro uh, Tiron Guzman, which I feel like you are a partner to us. I actually still remember the day that Lily came to me um, a couple of years ago and said, I love the work we do, and I actually love Minnesota, but I'm not sure that I can find a home here. So you, you really have played a part in our project. And um, we, in the early years, when we first went into independent production, which was about six years ago now, there were five of us rolling around in here, and we had parties all the time. <laughs> it's a great party space, as you can see. But now there are something like 22 of us, and we normally have desks where you all are sitting, and they have all been moved downstairs, and everyone um, has emptied their things, and almost all of our team is here. You can't see all of them. A lot of them are up here. Um, but it's a very special, you know, we love doing this, and we don't do it very often, and we're so happy to do it for you and with you. Um, and we were just absolutely thrilled when Sandra Cisneros said that she would be my guest for this evening. Thank you. So we've been looking forward to this for a long time, and here we are. Um, we will have a conversation up here for about, oh, I want to say, Chris or Zach, where is the clock? We haven't done this here in a while. Okay. Well, yeah, we, now see, we're out of practice. Um, I am going to need a clock because I didn't bring a, I didn't wear a watch. Okay. Um, we will be in conversation up here for something like 45 or 50 minutes. And then we will open this up to, for Sandra to be in conversation with you. And um, so just think about questions uh, you have as they arise, and we're going to do it conversationally. Hello. Um, bringing the microphone around. Um, I think that's it. I think we can start, and we have a clock. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, you know... Um, Thank you. There we go. Thank you. So, Sandra... 
the this work of conversation that I do, I feel like every time I start to prepare for a conversation, it's just this adventure and this discovery to see what it will be interesting to pursue. And I have to say that um, I, you know, it was so wonderful to to really delve into your writing and 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 also how you've written about your life. I mean, which which you do, right? That 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 your entire body of work and the way you think and you write is kind of about the adventure of being alive. And hmm. yeah, well, that's, <laughs> one thing that occurred to me. So I mean, what I'm saying is. Um, I always think about how I'm going to organize a conversation. And with you, the, the idea that keep, kept coming to me is there's this, there's this line of Annie Dillard, and I forgot to look it up, but it's something like, we are all, you are made and set here to give voice to your astonishments. And I feel like as I look at your body of work, um, it's these varied astonishments that, that jump out at me that are about your life, but also about 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 everybody's life. And so that's kind of how I want to move through this this evening and see what happens. Okay. But you had a reaction to that, so I'd love to hear uh, it. Well, um, I'm a little astonished by that statement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think um, I've never given up feeling astonished by life. I think that artists are children that never grow up. Mm. And I'm at 64. I'm on the verge of turning 65. I'm even more astonished by what has come my way, just being here and being your guest, when I say who has been your guest in the past, is a great honor. And I think of myself not with my awards and my accomplishments, um, but I think of my biography of failure. Mm. You know, so, mm. you know, when someone's reading my accolades, I think, oh, but good thing they're not mentioning my fifth grade report card. <laughs> Uh, but I think of myself as that person mm -hmm. that I was, and I still am that person. Um, and I'm always astonished that I'm giving, given a microphone and a forum, and everyone's come out in the cold to hear me, uh, because I come from a big family where everyone yeah. spoke at the same time and no one listened. <laughs> uh, okay, well, everybody's going to listen to you tonight. I know. Every time. I just, like, I just came from Tucson, and they said, oh, there's 1,500 people out there. And I thought, good. And some part of me is still that child that uh, didn't, get a, a chance to speak enough, or that was silenced in public spaces, or felt that she wasn't intelligent enough, or, or not uh, the beauty, or not the chosen one in class, the one that just kind of was invisible. So the fact that uh, you're inviting me here, it's like, woohoo, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you... Um have written that your ancestors emigrated to the United States during the diaspora of the Mexican Revolution, crossing the border at El Paso and relocating several times, that they were migrant farm workers at first, and later they worked on the railroad. And some of the places in this history of your family are El Paso, Flagstaff, Rocky Ford, Colorado, Kansas, ending up in Chicago. Um, if I ask you about uh, the spiritual or religious background of your childhood, um, 
however you would define that, what, what comes to mind? Can you re- I didn't, I just missed one the, word. If, was there a religious or spiritual background? Oh, okay, which actually, in, in all the writing you do about your family, that's, that doesn't feature. Well, that's because um, my family has different kinds of spirituality. My, my mother was a spiritual person, but she was very uh, suspicious of the, any organized religion. Mm-hmm. And that's because she was the one child that took after her father. And my grandfather was raised by his grandmother. And she was suspicious of church and state. Okay. Uh, my grandfather didn't learn how to read or write till he was an old man. And this was because uh, he was raised during the time, uh, he was a child just before the revolution, and the government sent out some sort of uh, announcement, you know, bring your children to the town square or whatever, and we will teach them how to read. But my great-grandmother didn't believe it. So she took my grandfather and they went up to the mountains and hid. And that's why he never learned how to read. Mm. And there was a reason for this, uh, this confianza, for this distrust, uh, because at that time, before the revolution, uh, the church uh, was very wealthy and exploited the poor. And my grandfather mm-hmm. was a, and his people were landless workers on land that wasn't theirs. Uh, so I think it's not just... Uh, Cordero trait, this distrust. I think everybody in the whole town had this distrust because they saw a lot of betrayal. Yeah. And, and so my grandfather would tell my mother, uh, you don't have to give any money to the church. Give it to the poor, mm-hmm. you know, directly. Uh, his wife, on the other hand, was rather devout, but my mother was the one that took after him. And she taught us that, too, to make sure that we gave money directly to the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a strong sense of spirituality, but I think it was more of an indigenous spirituality. She didn't frame it that way, but there were some things that um, skipped a generation that she didn't bring with her. But on the other hand, my grandmother, I believe, was uh, intuitive. I say I believe because I don't know. But she knew things. Uh, she knew, for example, that you don't wake your children shouting at them. You have to do it very gently. And my mother was a shouter. So the fact that she did this <laughs> gently, uh, she yeah. reminded us that her mother did this. And it was to give the sleeper time to travel back into their body. So I think my grandmother had an, a knowing. Um, on the other hand, my father's family was from... Um, Mexico City. Uh, his mother was very devout Catholic, and my grandfather was a military man. At the end of his life, he, he had uh, risen to colonel. But he was uh, a man. And in Mexico, you don't have to go to church if you're a man. Your wife does that for you, or your mother. You know? So uh, he never uh, discussed the spiritual with me. But my grandmother was the one that uh, was friends with the nuns, uh, that had us wait outside while she went into the basilica, the very basilica that was planted on top of a pre-conquest goddess site, a very spiritual site, Tepeyat. And uh, at that time when I was a kid, I didn't realize the significance. We just used to run around and play. It was our playground. Right. And grandmother was inside praying. I've written a little bit about that. Um, I didn't know this grandmother very well. Um, she was... A little bit cranky, 
little bit, and I exaggerated that and the way that she treated my mother to create uh, the awful grandmother in Caramelo. But uh, in some ways, I'm finding that we're similar because now I'm friends with the nuns. You know, I like them because they're radical women. And uh, I have a They con- are, they, yeah, they, they are. always were. I, I, I yeah. didn't know that when right. I was a kid. But now I'm friends with a convent that's uh, half a block from my house. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though they try to, I guess they're trying to convert me. <laughs> Obviously but, not succeeding. But no, they invite me to masses and to, you know, Mother Superior's 50th anniversary party. And I, I feel very honored to be uh, respected mm-hmm. by Las Madrecitas. They're not sisters in Mexico, they're mothers, little mothers. Yeah. Las Madrecitas. And um, every month they pray for anyone I name, which is so nice. Yeah. And they pray for me, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you say, you, you said a minute ago that everyone was always speaking at the same time in your house. And yes. you were, you had six brothers. Yes. That, yes. I mean, I think that must have tested your spiritual uh, metal. Well, you know what it taught me? I never want to share a bathroom with a man again. <laughs> um, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, another thing it taught me is uh, I learned how to be uh, funny, with, thanks to my six brothers. Uh, I learned how to be self-critical because they were always criticizing me. So, uh, you know, I learned very early on to edit myself. Uh, but I also knew if you could be fast and you could be funny, uh, people would listen. It's right. a, uh, a way of getting people to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you've written, um, I became a writer thanks to a mother who was unhappy being a mother. And that you, one of your, that your mother searched for escape routes and she found them in museums, the park, and the public library. And I actually, I am also just such a deep lover of libraries and I don't think I've ever interviewed anybody where this, this jumped out. You know, I've spoken with people about how Museums, interestingly, are contemplative spaces, even in the midst of modern life. But libraries are as well, right? And you, um, libraries are spiritual houses, uh and they're run by women, for the most part. Uh, And if you come from a crowded house where you're sleeping in the living room or sleeping in beds with four people, uh, to have a space that's quiet is remarkable. And for me, you know, the library wasn't just a place to read, but it was a place to dream and to be quiet and look out the window and look at the trees and just to feel calm because mm-hmm. I'm, um, I'm hypersensitive as a writer. Uh, I, I just saw a big billboard in your airport about uh, autism and about hypersensitivity of autistic children. But I think that uh, artists and poets especially are hypersensitive as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why they design airports with so many uh, television screens and like the Houston terminal has all these little menus cards that are lit up and you yeah. sit on the plane and it, and it starts sending you information that you don't want to hear. So I feel like the library was the opposite of all that. It was some place that was very zen. The one I went to was very beautiful. And more than anything, it was just like a house to nurture your spirit. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you're poor, you don't have a space of your own to go that's quiet. Mm -hmm. You've also said that um, 
you spent so much time in the library, it was so important to you, but the house on Mango Street that you understood when you were writing it, that this was the book you couldn't find in the library. Well, what happened um, when I was in sixth grade, uh, we moved. And I like to tell the story of how lucky we were that we had a tremendous winter in 1966, must have been about then, and the pipes in our house froze, just like the characters in the house on Mongo Street. But unlike the characters in the house on Mongo Street, we were delighted by our new house. We were so thrilled that we got to go to another house where you could turn on the faucets and water came out. You know? You could flush away the waste. It was just great improvement over our last place. So that change was important because it took me out of a neighborhood where there were 46 students in the class, right. where I had um, more than a dozen absentees, uh, you know, absent days. I, I was so upset at that school and nervous and bored and anxious because the way that a teacher corrected us was by suddenly pouncing on you and making you stand up and whacking you with a, with a board. And so that created a lot of anxiety for a child. And I didn't realize that till I was in the next school. And in this new school, uh, the teacher uh, came up to my desk and she plucked the paper I was drawing and took it to the front of the room, and my heart just did a backflip. I thought, oh no, what did I do wrong? And she held it up and then put a little pushpin through it and said, look what our new student has drawn. Look how beautiful this is. Oh. I didn't have any grades for art in this other school, so it was the first time that I was singled out for something I did that was good. And I remember that same year was also the year I started writing poetry. And so how old were you? About six, whatever you are in sixth grade. What mm-hmm. is that? Yeah. 11, 12? 11, 12. Yeah. yeah. And I remember that same year, I went to the library, and uh, I was looking through the card catalog, looking through for something, and I came upon this card that was dirty and raggedy, and I said, oh, this must be a good book. <laughs> and then I imagined then, one day I want my name on this card catalog. And then I could see a book and the spine and my name. And I said, I couldn't see the title, but I said, this is what I want. Right. So I tell children now to see with that third eye and, and imagine what you want your future to be. In my case, I couldn't tell anyone about it because of the six brothers, and I wanted to protect this dream, <laughs> right. not have it savage. So I, I kept it a secret. But I tell children, you don't have to tell anyone, but I want you to see it and to walk towards that dream every day. And then you can say it aloud when you are in a safe place. Uh, but I think it's important that we give children that permission mm-hmm. to do that at that age or younger. It's too late if you wait too many years after that. You've, you've also said that your, um, you know, for your father in particular, you as a daughter were destined to, to marry. I, I didn't know that because I told him around that same year that I was going to go to college. I don't know where I got that from. And he said... Did you tell him that you had also decided you never wanted to share a bathroom with a man? No, I didn't tell him that. I didn't want to offend my father. But um, I did tell him I wanted to go to college one day and he said, oh, that's good, mija. So I thought he supported me. And it wasn't until 
my mid-30s that I realized my father wanted me to go to college the way women in his generation went to college to look for husbands. husband. To meet a man, right. <laughs> but you've also said that, that because he, he didn't take that seriously, like that he, you could study something silly like yes. English, yeah, and he, he didn't worry about that no, because no. you weren't supposed to make a career of it anyway. Right. So yeah. he didn't give me a hard time. My poor brother, who was also an artist and a musician, uh, he had to go into business administration. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have to go to business administration, right. but I did have a wide parachute, and I made sure that I had uh, um, courses that would make me marketable. Uh, I took education. I would be able, by the time I graduated, to teach at any level. So that was something I, I, I always assumed that I was going to have a day job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, so one of your astonishments, one of the things that runs all the way through the titles of your books and the things you write about is houses, yes. right? And, and, you know, again, I've had many conversations across the years, including very recently with Richard Blanco, the poet, about home, the meaning of home as something we're all always looking for and, and certainly in the immigrant experience, but... Um, you are also very interested in literal houses. Yes. In fact, yes. I mean, one of you, this book of, um, of essays is A House of My Own. Um, and, yeah, I guess, I even find you when you talk about the library, you know, you, you describe the library. The library was a wonderful house, a house of ideas, a house of silence. Um, I just, that, that just, it, it really is this thread all the way through your life. Well, if you've had to share a house with eight other people who make a lot of noise and make a big mess, you want your own house. Yeah. You don't want to share it, yeah. and you don't want to clean someone else's mess. So, you know, it's, a, it's different if it's your mess. Yeah. And also, if you're a writer, uh, you, don't, you need silence, and most people uh, can't understand that. Like my brother will come to visit and say, why don't you turn the radio on? Or why isn't this on? Why about the television? You know, I, I, that has its time and its place. Yeah. But uh, I like to listen to the birds. And I can't hear the characters or the things inside my heart if I'm not in a, living in a, a zone of silence. So you know this, this um, title, a, a House of My Own, of course echoes of Virginia Woolf's a room. Um, but I, I didn't see you quoting Virginia Woolf in, on that, but you, you did, um, you have mentioned something she said, that as a woman, I have no country. As a woman, my country is the whole world. And you said that you would, you would rephrase that, and you would say, as a woman, as a woman, I have no country. As a woman, I am an immigrant in the entire world. Yes. And I wanted, I wanted to hear what you mean when you say that. You know, I had a postcard with that quote of Virginia Woolf when I was traveling, when my first NEA grant in my 20s, when I finished House on Mongo Street. It was very important to me, that quote, as I was learning how to travel, because I'd never gone anywhere alone. Uh, but the more I traveled, uh, the more I've, I met women, and they befriended me, and they never, they never asked for anything in return the way that when men gave you something, there was always an ulterior motive, but not with women. And I just felt that regardless where I went, 
I was experiencing my father's immigrant experience, you know, what it was like for him to come across and to feel uncomfortable and to find friends among strangers and to be alone and to be taken into people's homes. You have gratitude when you're traveling and uh, you don't have a lot of money, or even if you do, if someone invites you to come into their home and, and share a meal. There's a kindness in that. And I just felt... Um, I understood my father's life in a different way after I made that trip. And uh, it seems to me that women, even if they never leave, are always treated like immigrants. You know, we're, we're not allowed to speak. Uh, we can't control our bodies. Church and state tell us what's good for us. And we're supposed to believe that, that you know, we have to obey mm. to be good women. We don't know what good is because we've never been asked to define it outside of what men want for us, yeah. never. Yeah. And you know, to me, that was uh, something I learned with time. So I think we're kind of like immigrants. We don't have a voice, mm -hmm. and we don't know our own voice because it's been molded since childhood. Uh, we've had to adapt to please uh, a patriarchal society. So I think I'm still at 64 trying to discover what's good for me. And uh, I'm, still, uh, I'm still an immigrant, but now I have a dual citizenship. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to cross many borders now in my life, uh, both physical and uh, spiritual. And uh, I'm, I'm trying as best I can because my time is running out. You know, I don't feel that I've done my best work. I don't feel I'm this, as wise as I would like to be. And it seems like you're just getting in the groove, and the party's getting really good, and it's like, I got to go. <laughs> Why do I have to go? My father used to do that a lot when he was in his 50s and 60s. He'd say, hmm, yeah, my boy. <laughs> and I would just tease him and say, where are you going? You just got here. So I feel like, I just got here. Pero well, yeah, my boy. Well, you know, so that's something else that really um, is so striking. In, in your books, um, in some of them at least, there's, there's a, there are a lot of photographs of you at different ages. And I feel like you, so I don't know if you think about it. So, you know, what I started writing down in my notes is the nature of time, I feel, is something that whether you call it that or not, you're always attending to, and by which I also mean the many people each one of us is in the course of a lifetime, right? The, the girl you were at 11, and the young woman at 25, and the woman at 64, and how all of those people are in relationship, and they're the same person, and they're not. Is that something that you that you've been thinking about for a long time? When I was 30, I wrote a poem that failed. And it was how I was 30, but I was also 29 and 28 and 27, and all the way until 
birth. Yeah. And uh, that I never finished that poem, but I wrote a story called Eleven, and I used that idea in the story. And I still feel I'm eleven underneath all the years. Right, you said you eleven know? is what you basically feel you. Yeah, that's, it's that's still your there. true age. Yeah, I still. You and know how you look at a tree, and there are some rings that had a lot of rain and gets really bigger, and they shrink. Well, you know, we can think about our own years and uh, what defined us or what happened to us in those years. Uh, but I'm still kind of like a kid, you know. My my father had this habit of like staring at at people, at things, and he would go around the block if he thought it was especially interesting, and you know, he and then he would be startled when people looked at him because I think he thought he was invisible. Right. You know? And I'm like that too. That you know, when you're 11, you're and a girl, you yeah. are invisible. And after a certain age, women become invisible again. And that's a wonderful thing. You can grieve and say, oh, nobody looks at me anymore. You mean men. Or you can say, oh, nobody looks at me anymore. That's so great. You know, you don't have to worry anymore. You know, it's so great. I feel like someone put a knife away. And I'm so thrilled now to be invisible again. And I pay attention to other older women, especially in the town I live in, because there's a lot of señoras, muy señoras. Are you living in Mexico now, correct? You still yes. Living? Yes, okay. And las señoras se arreglan muy bien. They look really nice with their lipstick. They wore a nice dress, and nobody tells them they look nice. Mm. But I tell them, and because I see them. And I think as uh, the nice thing about being older in Mexico is that um, you get respect. As an elder. As an elder, mm -hmm. you get respect. Uh, you know, when I was younger, I had to dress in kind of nun clothes so that men would leave me alone and, and not bother me. I didn't want to be a mamacita. Mm -hmm. But now, uh, when I come into the airport, uh, the porters with their little carritos, their little carts come up and they say, Madrecita, can I help you? <laughs> and also, I'm little mother. And, you know, yeah. what could be better in Mexico than uh, to be called the mother? Who, all mothers are revered in Mexico, especially La Virgen de Guadalupe, the great mother. Right. So I've had no children, but I have ascended. Into, to be a mother. To be a mother, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of, again, moving backwards in time, but it, I was just thinking of something. You have a chapter in the house on Mongo Street called Hips. Yes. Right? This is about this moment where a woman where your body changes and something happens to you, which is you're saying, where well, you were suddenly, you know, you say, um, one day you wake up and they are there, ready and waiting like a new Buick with the keys and the ignition. <laughs> but then you're ready to take you where, which is a question mark, because that happens to girls, but we're not really told what to do with it. Well, I think young girls especially want to look sexy, yeah. but, they don't realize what that brings, and the discomfort, and the danger, and the uh, lack of being seen for who you are. It's a lot of trouble. And I, I tried to write about it in a way that I could get past the censors. When I was writing that chapter, the original title was Tits. <laughs> but I thought, if I write about that, that's too easy, and uh, you know, maybe someone in a school will say, we can't use this book. So I changed it and made it a little bit more challenging. Yeah. And uh, I, I liked that chapter. It was a lot of fun because I was able to include uh, something that 
girls know and those are the jump rope songs the games that we mm-hmm. play clapping mm-hmm. part of what we learn as young women and gets lost in adulthood so it was a way of interviewing people and saying what game did you play when you were a kid and how did it go yeah. So it was fun uh, to preserve that. I, I feel that uh, House on Manga Street is about borders, uh, the border between childhood and adulthood. Yes. And that border is um, fluid for many years. Yes. So that's what I was trying to write about. It, it's a book with uh, a great deal of themes about sexuality. I'm aware of that now because I'm working on it as a libretto with Derek Bermel. Are you more aware of it now in hindsight than you were when you were writing it? Yes, but when I was writing it, I was the uh, young woman in her 20s searching for her politics and her direction in life. So I'm, I was looking for my feminism and using Esperanza to assist me. But now I'm reworking it in a deeper level, so it's a lot of fun to go back and, yeah. and, and develop the characters a little bit deeper for the opera. So you, you wrote, for the 25th anniversary edition, you wrote you, you, this house, A House of My Own essay, which appears in other places, but this is the kind of preface to, this, yeah. to, to the book. Um, yeah, this is one place where there's a picture of you I don't know, how old are you there? I'm about 27, 28. I'm just, I don't know. I just think, I'm just fascinated with what, how you wrote this. So I just want to talk it through. You know, you said, this is how it begins. The young woman in this photograph is me when I was writing The House on Mongo Street. She's in her office, a room that had probably been a child's bedroom when families lived in this apartment. You go through, you know, a description of, where and when you're always writing about her, this girl, this young woman, um, and then and and you're you're giving many details of her life. You know, returning to Chicago after graduation, being a daughter, and then there's a place where suddenly um, the she turns to an I, and I just it's. You're so it's, it's, it's within a single paragraph. Um, the young woman's teaching job leads to the next, and now she finds herself a counselor recruiter at her alma mater, Loyola University on the north side in Rogers Park. I, and then, I have health benefits. I don't bring work home anymore. My workday ends at 5 p.m. Now I have evenings free to do my own work. I feel like a real writer. And I'm just so curious about that shift that you made between her and I, she and I, and what changed? Like, what happened in that, inside that paragraph? I think a writer has to come into her voice. I think a, a woman has to come into her voice because everyone speaks for us. And we lose our public voice and sometimes we don't even have our, a genuine private voice. And for me, when I was asked to write the introduction, I was studying that photograph. And, okay. I, and I knew. And you were studying your younger self. Yeah, I said, that's not who I am now. Right. But that's who I was when I was working on these pieces. So I had to talk about her as uh, a she in the third person. Yeah. And uh, it, it seemed to me. Uh, 
I don't really like the cover of uh, House of My Own, because that's the same age, that's the same period, that's the same photographer, okay. it's the same photo shoot as the photograph. In, right. And, because when I look at her, I say, oh, que tonta. <laughs> you know, what an idiot I was. I had so much power, and I didn't know. And I gave it away. And, you know, I, I, I just... Well, I had to make all those stupid mistakes, otherwise I wouldn't be who I am now. But it breaks my heart when I look at her and I think how she was used and things that she allowed to happen to her and just the explosions that happen in our lives, the, what I call the exploding cigars of life. You know, you're just having a wonderful smoke. And then, like, oh, how, did, how did that happen? You know, like that. But, you know, this is something I've thought about a lot, too, is there's also something in that about how we women are so merciless about our younger selves. And, um, you know, one of the things, another kind of thread that runs through your life is there's a lot of fear that goes along with being a woman. A lot of things to be frightened of. Mm-hmm. I think that when you're Mexican, it's even worse mm-hmm. because you're trying to imitate white women and trying to live like a white women's feminism. And, you know, if you do that, you know, it's uh, heartbreaking because you have to break your, the people you love the most, you have to break their heart and you break your own heart because mm-hmm. you've broken theirs. And see, like, you know, if I had been a white woman living in my apartment, that would have been perfectly fine. But I was a Mexican-American woman who had to go against the person I loved the most to have that space of my own. Your father. My father. Mm-hmm. He, my brothers didn't leave home until they married. Right, you left home. They yeah, didn't I home. was the black yeah. sheep. So yeah. I, they, they, they had their own uh, crimes, but they kept it under, under right. wraps. You know? but, but this is what I'm saying. That younger you seized this bravery, like, right? Found this bravery in herself. Um, I met people who were mirrors of who I wanted to become, and Mm -hmm. uh, for better or worse. I think we all do when we fall in love. No, we fall in love with who we want to be, Mm -hmm. and we don't really see clearly that, oh, Maybe that's who you want to be, but you don't have to be that per- be with that person. And uh, so I made a, a lot of mistakes, and my whole idea of like what it meant to be uh, a feminist or what to be a, a strong woman or free, I think it's very muddied in your twenties. I think the twenties is so hard for women. I know it's so hard, and you get told that it's your, the best years of your life. It's the and worst. It's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the worst. But I told, I always yeah. tell my students, don't worry, it only lasts ten years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll we'll come back to the nature of time. Um, so, someone has said of you. Sandra Cisneros is both of these things, a Mother Teresa and a Madonna Ciccone. Um, And so we'll get to the Madonna part. But um, I want to, you know, there's a line of yours in your writing. I wrote this down. I can't remember where it was from, where you said, let us all attempt to be more humane and more generous in these unkind times. Which is such a beautiful and important sentence. I think we're obligated to, don't you think? I do. 
I witnessed at the O'Hare Airport a very rude man asking for a hot dog, and I was in front of him, and the uh, workers were people of color, and they gave him what he asked for, and he kept insisting, that's not what I get here. I've been here before. And he was just, they were stunned. They couldn't say anything, and he was so rude, and left and saying, I'm not coming back here. And there was nothing they could do, yeah. and it hurt me. It hurt me to see them silenced and disempowered. So now I have to do something positive. I don't know what to make up for it. I feel like when we witness something like that, okay, we have to do something positive. Just my telling you makes me feel better. Okay. You know? <laughs> and uh, yeah. that rude man at Gold Coast Hot Dogs. <laughs> you know? You know, just because you have a suit and tie doesn't mean you can be little workers that are, have, are working mm-hmm. so hard and mm-hmm. such a cramped hot environment. So I just feel like when you witness things, mm-hmm. that it's our obligation to do something positive. You know, uh, We know children tonight are sleeping under uh, pieces of aluminum foil. Mm-hmm. We have to do something for children. Like this fundraiser is a good thing. And we have to do something to right the planet every day if we witness something that makes us feel such despair and sadness for others. We have to be more human. Mm-hmm. And especially in this time when there's such incivility mm-hmm. in language and, and, and our politician in chief gives everyone a, a bad example of what it means to be an adult, mm-hmm. we have to work harder to be more humane. I, I think that that... Um that focus you have on, for example, in that exchange you're talking about, about the people who are working so hard behind the counter just to do their jobs. I mean, you, you've described yourself as, um, as an artist whose work explores the lives of the working class. Um, of course, your Chicago was also the Chicago of Studs Terkel, right? That was, yes, that was, he was I an influence, Studs. right? And I did interview him when he was 93, which was amazing. Oh. Um, I think that language of working class, I, I wonder, I, I feel like it's not, I'm not sure people know what that means anymore, and I'm curious about what that evokes for you. Wow, you're right. Maybe it's an uh, archaic term now. Uh, what would people want to be called? Well, what do you, I mean, what do you think? What do you mean when you say that? How would well, you I describe? Well, I didn't say it. It was, put, it was imposed on my oh, bio by someone else. Oh, somebody else, else wrote that yeah, on your bio? Yeah, MacArthur Foundation okay, well, meant that. I didn't write that. <laughs> All right. I thought, I thought that was you. No, no that well, wasn't me. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess I would ask people, like, you know, I would ask our audience. I would yeah. ask, I think people should name themselves. People yeah. should name themselves. No, that's good. Well, then let me say, let me say it this way. I mean, here's another way I observed. That I feel like that the world that you see and that you care about and are curious about is uh, in many ways, um, not in every way, but in many ways it's, it's a world that is quiet and, and mighty at once, kind of like libraries. Um, people who are leading, as we say, real lives. Um, but lives that defy the, the loud, the loudness, like I mean, so an example is somebody you write about, Maria Luisa Camacho de Lopez. Oh yes, also known as Mrs. Eddie Lopez. Yes. So, talk about her, like somebody that somebody like that is in the world, and for you, that's also the story of the world. Well, this is the people I love, you know, people I know who aren't history, 
and they won't be in a history book or they won't get in a museum. Right. That's what I mean by quiet. And they're great and they're doing selfless work. Mrs. Camacho de Lopez was my mentor in textiles and in Mexican folk art and in Mexican customs. And I met her at a friend's wedding because she came in como una reina, like a queen, wearing a Mexican huipil and a big flower in her hair. She was a big woman, but she was beautiful. And we looked and said, who's that? Oh, who is that? And we went up to her and said, you know, con permiso, uh, we would like to meet you. And she said, oh, soy la señora Camacho de Lopez. And we just, we're just, loved her, we adored her instantly, and she was very generous and kind. She turned out to be like the walking Smithsonian of like Mexican culture in her little neighborhood. And she would uh, teach people how to say the prayers for the rosary. She would tell you how you set up the Day of the Dead altar. Right. She might say, you're missing some bowls of water there, like I did when I came in, <laughs> and some salt. You know, and she would just come in, she was like the the gran bruja, you know, the shamana that comes in of, of light. And uh, I just learned from her so much. And uh, I think one of the great things in my life was the story she gave me mm -hmm. that became Caramelo. She was the daughter of, of a reboso maker, a shawl maker. Okay. And I borrowed that to uh, create my character, the awful grandmother. But uh, more than anything, she had such a pride in being who she was. And her husband was a, a San Antonian of Mexican descent. And this couple, their house became a cultural center. Anybody who wanted to come in and learn something, it was a very tiny little house next to the HEB grocery store. And everybody would come in, and you know they were just uh, people of great spirit. Yeah. And I think that those are kinds of people that we need to remember and we need to tell their stories. We need to record their lives. Otherwise, they don't count. They're not history. And everybody right. knows people like that. that yes. You know, if we don't tell their story, then uh, Ken Burns will write about it and, and miss them completely. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, right? <laughs> Um, yes, I mean, it's so important to just say aloud uh, as often as possible that most of the interesting and important people who are, in fact, changing the world are not famous and will never be famous. And they're not MacArthur geniuses, no, and they never got an NEA. No, like you. Mm -hmm. um, here's, I mean, I also learned so much about Texas, for example, through your stories of her, right? So here's, you know, just this paragraph you wrote. She was a walking... Museum of well, Mexican culture, especially textiles. Without realizing it, she was nourishing Texas with the history that was rightfully theirs, but was not taught in the schools, even though the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had promised to preserve their Mexican language and culture. When the Alamo was remembered, the legacy of the people's Mexican heritage was forgotten. Um, so Senora Lopez was sent to San Antonio to keep the community from forgetting who they truly were. That's true. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, very honored when her daughter asked me to write an obituary. Mm -hmm. And you know, several people have asked me to write uh, eulogies or something for their loved ones. And I can't cook. I don't know how to make a casserole, so this is what I'm good at. <laughs> you know? uh, um, you have struggled with depression. 
And that, yeah. that's something that you write about. I mean, it's, it's been I talk of, about it, too. You about you know, it. I'm not ashamed of it or mm-hmm. proud, but mm-hmm. it just is. You know? mm-hmm. And I think it's something that uh, before, uh, uh, before I knew what it was, I was so ashamed. And I don't want people to be ashamed and go through uh, yeah. near death, as I did. You did. You talk about, was it in 1987? It was kind of yes. a 10-month period of the dark night of the soul. Yes, very dark. And you know, it's because I already had House on Mongo Street uh, out, but people don't realize that wasn't an overnight success. You know, the book, I finished it in 1982, got published two years later, and then I went through a really dark period where uh, I realized even though I'm good at creating uh, writing that people love, I can't pay my rent with that. And I can't, uh, uh, I don't know how to sustain myself. I, I can't earn a living with my writing. So what good is that? Yeah. And uh, of course, when you can't find a job and then you find one that you feel you're a failure at, you, you spin into a, a deeper depression. Uh, I never wanted to teach at the university because I didn't feel comfortable there as a student. And I felt obligated to, uh, in that year, someone uh, opened a door for me and I couldn't find a job in Texas and I was forced to go to California and take a job that I was terrified of. So of course when you come in as a guest a writer, they give you the, the classes that nobody wants and uh, reluctant students, mm-hmm. the students that are not necessarily interested in English, and, and uh, so I had a very hard time, and all of that failure just kept building and building until I, I just felt that I couldn't go on. Mm-hmm. And you, um, you describe yourself now um, spiritually as a Buddha lupist. A Buddha lupista. That's what Buddha I lupista. Um, and it sounds like you you have said that this. There, there was this conversion that was subtle over time, not some moment, and and that kind of living with depression and working through that. Um, well, you know, when you go through a near-death experience as I did, you keep thinking, oh my, what if I'm successful and destroy myself next time around? Mm-hmm. So I, I uh, consciously sought uh, teachers. Uh, women, uh, books about women in depression, books about women in the arts, books about uh, working class people in uh, the academy. Uh, and I, I sought out a therapist and I found an intuitive. And I started, uh, I guess I started finding that self I would have found if my grandmother, the one that was new things, had yeah. been alive. She could have guided me. Uh, so I started discovering intuitives and slowly realizing, oh, I have those gifts too. Um, I think if we had been raised in with our indigenous grandmothers, that we would know that, yeah, everybody flies around when they're sleeping and you come back gently. And sometimes we can problem solve when we're dreaming. And some of us have gifts of visiting the, the, the dead and the dead come to visit us. And everybody has that potential. It's not like someone's greater than someone else. It's just we have to learn how to develop it. Mm-hmm. And would you talk a little bit about the um, the Virgin de Guadalupe and what what she means to you, what that figure means to you? Well, um, you know, I was raised on my father's side in Tepeyac, which is the neighborhood in Mexico City where the Basilica is, so that okay. was always there. But it was not anything I paid it any attention to. I think after I went through the year of my near death, when I was 33, uh, I started doing research, and eventually, 10 years later, I would uh, discover Thich Nhat Hanh, 
during right. a time. And you said yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh brought out the Guadalupe in you? Yes, he, you know, because uh, yeah. I, I, I was, you know, I believe in La Divina Providencia, and my friend Yasna was lost to me during the uh, war in Sarajevo, during the, the Bosnian War. And uh, I remember someone asked me at that time to speak at an international Women's Day event because this was the time of the Bosnian women uh, and their rape. And so they, you know, in San Antonio, I was, I guess, the authority because I had lived there. And I wanted to write something meaningful, meaningful. And I was searching around for inspiration in my bookshelf, and a book fell out of my bookshelf. And it was Thich Nhat Hanh's Being Peace. Oh. And that book had been given to me by my friend in Bosnia when she was visiting me oh. in, in uh, Berkeley. She said, this seems like an interesting book. But I shelved it and never read it until that moment. And that book taught me another way of, of being an activist. Another way yeah, of working for change. He worked on, he coined this term, engaged Buddhism. Yes, and if you wanted to create peace, you had to be peace. And uh, that was uh, so radical for me. Uh, and I especially felt so upset and angry and impotent as a woman about my friend. And, and every day you would hear all the world leaders say, well, we're going to do something next Tuesday. You know, it just got delayed, like Rwanda. You know, the yeah. world just kind of ignored the massacre and the, the genocide and rape that was going on. But it was especially personal to me because I didn't know if my friend was alive, and she's like a sister of my heart. Uh, so I wrote a speech which I thought would be um, a tender memory of living with my sister. And instead, it was angry. And uh, I remember I put the speech in my cowboy boot because I was so nervous, I didn't want the paper to shred, and, and I took it out of my boot, and people laughed, thinking I was going to be you know, badass. But actually, it was an angry piece. It's printed in my book, uh, House of My Own. And in order to keep myself from crying and, and buckling under the emotions, I had to shout it. So I was shouting it, but I was crying and shouting it. And, uh, you know, this came from a place of impotency and silence over months and months and months. And uh, the next day, the New York Times asked to publish it. And later, uh, National Public Radio uh, did a staging reading my letter and a letter that came through uh, thanks to journalists from Yasna. So it was amazing how when you act, how it initiates other actions. So I, I, I believe that was La Divina Providencia speaking through Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> um, so I think I want to circle back to um, again how you work with like all the things that happen to one in a lifetime and, and the different people you are and the, the stages you go through. What is that noise? Is that, what is it? Oh, it's the... Is it raining? No, it's no, it's something in the um, the speaker. Chris, we're going to replug. Is it your heating system? 
No, 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 it's in the speaker. It's, um, it's oh, just... I had a house like that, and the radio would go on. The radiator <laughs> would so go on, houses. and it was like some, some crazy neighbor banging on that metal. Yeah. Um, well, while, while we're waiting for that, tell us about your, your t- how many tattoos do you have? I'm sorry? How many tattoos do you have? Two. Two. <laughs> you've written so interestingly about your tattoos, like coming back to this idea of time travel as something that joins you with the younger generation. You know, I didn't know that. You know, I just uh, did it to be subversive because um, when my, one of my books came out, I don't know which one, uh, Hispanic magazine wanted to put me on the cover. And my agent knows how I feel about that word. So uh, she said, well, what do you think how we're going to... How do you gonna- feel about what? I don't like it. You don't like being on the cover? I don't mind being on the cover. I just don't like the word Hispanic. Oh, you don't like the word Hispanic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, ain't Hispanic. You know, but some people feel they are. That's fine, but I don't. And I have my reasons. So uh, what word do you like? I'm, or do you not I'm like- um, Latina. I'm Mexican-American. I'm American. I'm Mexican. I'm from Las Americas, North and South. Okay. That's what I feel mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, to me, it was just a word that, you know, you know how one day you went to sleep and the next day, all over town, there were these little machines that said, USA Today. And it was, that word came up like that, you know, right. overnight. Right. And it wasn't something that was organic for my community. So I, I, I felt uh, a resistance to it. Um, it's different from hispano, you know, but I didn't use hispano. You know, that was not a word from my community. Um, but anyway... We have issues with that word. My agent knew I had that issue. Uh, and then we had an opportunity to be on the cover, and she said, what do you think we're going to do? And I said, we will be on the cover, but I'll figure out a way to make it work for me. So I thought, maybe I'll wear a hat, and it'll say, you know, Latina. <laughs> you know? But then I thought, no, that could get cropped. And then I had someone um, paint a, a tattoo on my arm, and it said... Uh, I think it said Pura Latina, I think. But I liked it so much, I said, oh, I'll get a real tattoo there. And I said, well, I'm not, the issue isn't about Latina. The issue is something that is permanent and that is important in my life now. Mm-hmm. And for me, the Virgen de Guadalupe is important. And Esther Hernandez, the uh, Chicana artist, designed it blending Guadalupe with uh, Kuan Yin and blending her with uh, other goddesses. So she's kind of a, a composite of several diosas. But my mother didn't like it. You know, she uh, one day looked at me and she said, that's the dumbest thing you ever did. I said, Ma, having eight kids was the dumbest thing you ever did. And a lot more work. She, she left the room after that comment. <laughs> she had eight live births, seven survived. Mm-hmm. And she lost a child when it was over a year old. So mm-hmm. it was devastating to her. Mm-hmm. And I just kept telling her, Ma, why didn't you, you know, you were in the hospital so many times. Why didn't you just say, tie up those tubes while you're at it, you know? But uh, she never did. I, and she was a product of her generation. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't something that uh, one did at that time. It, it, it's been, it was such, a, such an act of, of rebellion for you. Um, to not only not marry, but but be alone, be... Well, you know what? It took me a long time to realize that it's... Uh, 
more lonely to live with someone sometimes than it is to be alone. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I live alone now, but I'm not lonely. Right. And I feel right. very right. loved it's a by, choice. by the universe yes. and the trees and, yes. and the clouds and the sky and the sunsets and my dogs and the mm-hmm. people who are in my life and my students. I don't feel lonely. There's a lot of women in my town who are always looking in the horizon, you know, for that next guy that's coming, coming around the bend. But I don't feel that. I feel a sense of, of contentment and joy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard to live with somebody. Yeah. It's hard to live alone, but it's easier to but live it's alone. it's also hard to yeah. <laughs> um, and I do, I do love that your father, who always... I mean, it, it just sounds like I mean, he, he, he couldn't have imagined that a daughter wouldn't marry, right, when you were a child. And, but that, that eventually there came a point where he actually was, was so, he, he took in your independence and how complete you were. Well, you know, the first thing he did when he came in my house that I bought with my pen, he, he jumped up and down and said, look, the boards creak. <laughs> And he just found fault with everything. And, and then eventually he saw I had a housekeeper, I had a gardener, that I had uh, an, uh, peop- an assistant, I had people that helped me. And, and, and he said at the end of his life, you know, um, that I had done well. We, we made our peace with one another. Mm-hmm. And I had this selfish prayer that my father would live long enough to understand why I had lived the way I did why I had made those sacrifices, why I had slept on the floor for 10 years and lived out of boxes and moved and, and traveled so much following jobs so that I could uh, support the writing. Mm-hmm. The writing became the spouse. It was a difficult spouse and still is. Mm-hmm. It still is a difficult spouse, mm-hmm. but it's a very faithful spouse. you know. And there's sometimes that we don't speak to each other. And sometimes that I just don't understand that spouse. But uh, it's a union for life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Didn't your father, didn't you write that at some point he said you shouldn't marry because a man would want to take, because you had money and you had a place and a man would want to take that? When he would see me, you know, I would just fall asleep on the couch and he would speak above me like if I couldn't hear him. And he thought I couldn't hear, but he'd say, Oh, pobrecita Sandra. Oh, ojalá que se case Sandra. When is Sandra going to marry poor Sandra? And uh, finally, when I got to MacArthur, it all fell into place. And he said, Mija, don't marry. He'll just take your centavos from you. <laughs> and I thought, yes! Your father finally gets it. <laughs> um, let's open this up. Um, I want to just say, in case we don't discuss this theme, that the border everyone crosses is death. And we're here for celebrating Day of the Dead, which is a wonderful gift that uh, Mexican Americans, Central Americans, uh, Latin Americans from the Americas can give the United States. Because uh, unlike uh, in the US, the dead don't depart. They hang around and guide us and protect us. We have a very different relationship Mm -hmm. with the dead. And it's a border we all cross. It's some place that we can come together and uh, 
respect and heal one another. And I'm looking at this time when America is so divided that we need to find those borders we have in common. I don't hear any political candidate talking about those borders that we have in common. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those human borders. Yes. Yes. So I thank you for inviting me uh, during a very special time. Um, the older I get, uh, the more I'm in connection with those spirits. Uh, I thought I had vivid dreams as a child, but now I know, no, those weren't dreams. Those were spirits visiting you. And I know that because a friend of mine who also is intuitive, uh, we spent the night in a haunted hotel that we didn't know was haunted and had the same visitor in our dream. And then we really? realized, yes, in San Francisco, and we realized, oh, that wasn't a dream. You know, so now I'm aware I travel with uh, Sage, and uh, Joy travels with, uh, Joy Harjo travels yeah. with Sage Oil, because she said it won't get her in trouble with the management. Because <laughs> uh, I'm always worried that people are thinking I'm sm smoking mota, you know? Because <laughs> I have my little Sage. But if I don't do it, you know, I've had situations in China and in other places where I wake up on the floor. And I think that the spirits are, know who can hear them and come and visit and want to tell their story. I think that's what they want. But I have never been brave enough to ask. You know, one day. I'm trying to write about that because I think in Mexico the spirits are much more active and more involved in everyday life. In the United States, uh, we don't know how to listen and we dismiss that. As right. You know. I just I wonder if, if you perceive it as uh, they're more active or people are more open and attentive. Well, I think that we have to understand that the uh, altars come from the rituals of indigenous mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And so the communities are more in connection with their indigenous heritage and who haven't forgotten how to listen. Uh, I think that they know how to tune in and, and tap and, into and that. And rituals are physical ways of inviting. Yes, and you know, it doesn't matter who's in the audience. In The people that are most uh, different than me can be in the audience, but all of them have, have suffered from death. We've all witnessed a death in our families, or we will witness death in our families. So these rituals help everyone. Mm. There's something you wrote, and then we'll open it up, about... Um, oh, I'll read this later. Yeah, let's, let's okay. um, get to pass the mic microphone around. Right. I'm going to help you. I can hold some stuff for you. Um, you got a lot in your hands going on. I'm, uh, oh God, oh my God. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Is your name? My name is Iglali, and I'm thankful that you're here. And I'm also thankful that uh, all of you guys are supporting El Centro. Um, one question I have is why did you... Do you choose poems and books? Like, what did it, like, how did it inspire you? Why did I choose the form of poetry? Mm -hmm. in, in which books? Yeah. In all my books? Oh, well, do you write poetry? I love poetry. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, then you know we need to write poetry. Poetry is the most difficult to me of all the, the literary genres. 
and the most important, especially right now, when we're going through so much pain. I think the poets are in the profession of uh, transforming grief to light. They're like our shamanists. And they're also in the profession of telling the truth, because you can't write a poem unless you tell your truth. It isn't a poem if it isn't a truth. And we're living in a time of so much confusion and lies and counter lies and people saying that's fake and that's true, that there's so much confusion about what's true. So the poets are uh, in the forefront right now doing important business. This is a great time for poetry. I think we're living in a renaissance of poetry yeah. and we need the poets right now to help us, uh, help us illuminate the path in a time of confusion. And for me, poetry is uh, illumination, especially when my spirit is clouded and I don't have the language. I try when I write fiction to write each line as beautiful as if it was a poem. The direction and the process is a little different, but I try to marry the two, prose and poetry. And uh, I think poetry is medicine that we need right now at this time, this dark time that we're living in the United States. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Um, a woman of the Americas. Um, what words of wisdom would you give to our young people these days? I would tell the young people to earn their own money. <laughs> Most important, you can't follow your dream if someone else is giving you your money. And this is true in partnerships too. The more you can earn your own money, the more independence you have about controlling your life. I always give these three points, so I've said them before. Earn your own money. Two, control your fertility. No excuses, men and women. You can get thrown off your brilliant careers because of an unwanted pregnancy. And it's, it's something that we don't talk about. How are we complicit in all of these unwanted pregnancies by not talking about this? Because you know, in other times, when you were 12, you were married. So it was all right if you had kids. And we ask you to wait and, and to imagine that you don't have desire to have love or a partner. So I think it's important that young people understand to control their fertility, to not have children when they're children. To, hmm. If you don't know how to do that, you need to go to organizations or the people that will help educate you. And so that's important. Number three, uh, solitude is sacred. We tend to think that we have to have a partner or we have to be out every night, but the time that you're alone or when you think that you're unpopular, you don't have a date or you're at home, that time is for you to nurture you. So think about what a gift it is when you're alone because that's your time to nurture you. So earn your own money, control your fertility, Solitude is sacred. That's the advice I give young people. How beautiful. I'm, I'm 44 and I'm still learning from Sandra how to be a strong Chicana. So thank you so much. Um, you can't go wrong, just listen to this advice. My question for you is now that, again, because of my generation, I remember seeing Sandra Cisneros as an author and as, a, as part of the canon. And that was when I got to university, right? I never saw Latina authors in high school. 
Tell us a little bit about what that feels like and what are you hoping in terms of using more of your work and Latina work in U.S. curriculum? Well, I'm thinking more of, of diverse voices, not just my voice or other Latinas. I think that we need to have a diversity of voices. And uh, it's so exciting right now to see all the young writers of color that are part of American letters right now. You know, a young uh, Afghani writer, uh, a black writer from the projects of Chicago, uh, a Puerto Rican writer writing about growing up in the streets of Miami. There's just a diversity of writing that's coming up, and it's good. Books are getting nominated for awards, are getting published by New York houses. And I'm excited, I'm thrilled, because we need to uh, see ourselves in literature. And uh, I just read today that the reading test in the nationally dropped in, in children in eighth grade and in fourth grade, like the, the grades dropped by half. That's mm. terrible. And so we need to engage and involve young people so that they see their stories, identify, and want to read. Uh, it's, it's shameful that we're living at this time and we see these grades drop. Uh, but on the other hand, we need stories. Maybe the stories won't come on the page. They might come on the screen, or they might come through cartoons or through graphic novels. However it is, we, we need stories. Stories help to save us. They help to make us feel that we're part of a society. And they help us to navigate our way. Because the only stories we're getting, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of seeing uh, stories with explosions and guns and yeah. superheroes. And when a nation is is being fed those stories and consuming those stories, it's because something is missing in their society. They're looking to be saved. There's a fear that you can uh, feel when you come into the United States. And um, that's distressing for me when I cross the border and feel that fear. Um, I want stories that are going to teach us how to resolve things in revolutionary ways and peaceful ways. Uh, and how do we transform our anger to light? You know, we don't have uh, models except for, you know, Buddhist monks like Thich Nhat Hanh uh, to teach us. Uh, and we don't have poets in the schools anymore because they think, oh, we don't have money for that. But that, those classes are what save children from despair and that allow us to transform our pain to light. If we don't have the arts, then we explode with a gun. I truly believe that, and I believe that uh, I was very lucky just recently. To, I was in Tucson, and I went to the schools, and I saw the faces of children and their poetry in the schools program. And I remember when I was a little kid, you know, having just drawing, how much that saved my life, and that teacher that showed everyone that drawing mattered. That changed me into thinking that what I had to say was valuable. That changed me into braving raising my hand for the first time. And that motion changed my destino from being that kid that gets forgotten and, and to being a speaker now. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that moment that that teacher singled me out for artwork. 
Hi, I'm Coco. Um, speaking of using your book in the school, we just read your book as our final project for the end of the quarter. And we had like, at the end of the book, we had a 45 minute discussion about the book, but we spent the majority of it trying to figure out why you didn't use quotations in the book because a lot of kids were like, oh my God, this is so hard to read. I don't understand why we didn't do it. So wait a second, wait a second. I read your papers. You don't use quotation marks either. <laughs> So I was just wondering I, I, why I know, you didn't I've use taught it. in the schools. But let me tell you the reason I'll tell you why. I'm just being funny with you. I didn't use quotation marks because I wanted the sentences to work like poems. And I if I had quotation marks you had to read it one way, but if the quotation mark isn't there then you can use it you can read it and understand it in more than one way. And because they're so small, I wanted flexibility with each sentence. Also, I didn't like that it would clutter up the, the way it looked, so I tried to make it as clean as possible. But I read a lot of experimental writers when I was a young woman, and I wanted to write a book that wasn't like the books that I had seen. I later would discover there were other writers that were doing story cycles, but when I started mine, I didn't know about them. But I thought if I move the punctuation and make it as minimal as possible, of course you have to use punctuation, but I tried to make it as minimal as possible, there would be more ways that one could read that sentence. Okay? Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Siklali. Um, you said that you had two tattoos. What do they mean and what? Well, one is the uh, Buda Lupe, the Virgen de Guadalupe merged with other diosas, which is my public one. And the other one is a little one that I have on my hip that I got when I was in Iowa City, uh, just on a kind of spur of the moment, because my, <laughs> my friend was getting an eagle, and I said, oh, I want one too. But I was, um, I was fixated on a photo shoot I saw in Look magazine with models that had tattoos at a time when women didn't get tattoos. They had little diamonds and club figures, the figures from the cards. So I have a little club figure, even though it means nothing to me you know, now, but at the time it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> so if you're gonna get a tattoo, wait until after you are self-employed and you are sure about that tattoo, so, okay? Um, my name's Gabby. Um, I'm from Detroit, so I came all the way here to see you. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, um, I love your writing, so thank you for being here. Um, my question is, so I grew up with two brothers, and I totally get where you're coming from. Like, you kind of have to scream to be heard, um, and just be quick, because that's how you just get heard. Um, so my question to you is, how different do you think you would be, or your life would be, if you grew up either with sisters, or if you were just a solo kid? You know, uh, my sister that passed away as a baby, uh, I often wonder how my life would have been different had she lived, uh, because I had um, uh, my father's attention. I was my father's daughter, and I was treated very special by my father. Uh, so I often wonder about that, if, if it would have been a space I would have to share with my sister. Uh, I, I don't know how that would be, but I have women in my life 
who are my sisters, you know, my friend Yasna in, in Sarajevo, and my cousin Licha, who appeared in House on Mongo Street as my cousin Licha, and then she got younger and younger and became Nanny, you know? And so originally, in the, in the original uh, first few stories, she was there as uh, someone to uh, uh, share uh, secrets with and to talk about our changing bodies. Uh, so I think, I think it would have helped me to have a, a sister. I miss things that sisters do, but I get that through women in my life who are my spiritual sisters. And I love when they come over and we all share stories or just sit in bed and chat. I just, I missed that. I didn't grow up with that. I, I, on the other hand, maybe I wouldn't have become a writer because the writing came from my loneliness as an only daughter. Uh, and I also spend a lot of time you know, talking to trees. And uh, that allowed me to become a poet. I think people who talk to trees are destined to become artists. Thank you for being here. I, I'm fascinated by this idea that you described of being a woman and being an immigrant everywhere. Um, I am U.S. born of Colombian parents and spent my life going back and forth and have often said that when I was in Colombia I was la gringa and when I was here I was la colombiana, you know, the Colombian, uh, sort of being six of one and half dozen of the other and never being fully whole. So this is fascinating for me. Uh, I wonder what your journey was, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, that took you back to Mexico and where you have felt most native. Well, um, I, I was always looking for the place where I felt I belonged. And I didn't feel I belonged in Chicago. My brothers and my cousins and family and aunts and uncles and mother and father were all fine. But I felt something was off. Um, I always wanted to leave and go somewhere else. My original plan with my NEA grant was to move to San Francisco because I heard there were a lot of Chicano writers there. That was my dream. But uh, someone talked me out of that, and they said, oh, you can do that anytime. You, you should travel with it. I thought, that's true. I can go there anytime. I'm going to travel, especially because I'm afraid to travel. And when I came back from traveling, uh, I was back where I started in Chicago, and I said, i got to get out of here. Yeah, and uh, the first job I applied for was a job I didn't want. And I think there's a rule. Anytime you apply for a job you don't want, you're sure to get it. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know what was San Antonio. I had no idea. And I got the job, but I knew I was looking at trouble from the history of, of the place where I would be employed. Uh, there was lots of uh, skirmishes, and those skirmishes were documented in the press. And I thought, well, I'll just work here a year, and then I'll take off and go to California. Uh, well, you know, 25 years later, <laughs> I did take off and go to California and to New Mexico and to Michigan. And uh, But, you know, the reason why I stayed in San Antonio was if you're an artist, you have to look for low overhead. You have to work two or three jobs, and you need low overhead so you can take time off and finish projects. So that's why I kept coming back to San Antonio. I would tell my friends, if you find me a place to live in Austin or San Antonio for $200 a month, I'll come. And they would, or I would find it. Or someone would say, you know, I'm going away for the summer. Uh, would you like to house sit? And writers need to uh, find house sitting jobs. 
That's a way and you can finish it. And people who own several homes need to let writers stay in their homes because afterwards they'll put your name in acknowledgments. It's true. And that may be the only way you're gonna get in a book. So I think, you know, we need to share our homes. You know, of course you gotta do a little bit of reviewing, make sure they're not gonna dance on tables, but you know, most writers, most mature writers just need low overhead and a place to write. And I forgot your question. What was your question? What got you back to Mexico? Oh, here, I'm getting there. Or to See, Mexico. I'm getting there. My story is very circuitous. Well, once I got to California, I thought, this isn't Mexico. You know, of course, Texas was Texas first and foremost, especially to the Tejanos. And I said, you know, this feels like Mexico, but when I paint my house a Mexican color, I get in trouble. So they've forgotten their Mexican history here. So I need to go, you know, I, I need to go somewhere where there's an indigenous population. And I thought of Tucson. I'm not crazy about Arizona politics, but I love Tucson. And I said, maybe Tucson. But then I was invited to the very state where my mother's parents were from, Guanajuato, uh, to a book fair. Mm. And I went there and I said, I'm just, I'm just gonna come here and investigate a little bit my ancestors. And, and I was there for the book fair and I liked it so much I came back a month later. And in the middle of the night, remember the spirits that wake you up? Remember that story? Well, they woke me up. And I don't really know who it was. Maybe it wasn't the spirits. Maybe it was San Miguel. Maybe it was the grandparents. Maybe, I don't know who. I'm not gonna say I know who woke me up, but I'm a sleeper. I think my natural state is being asleep. <laughs> and being awake is hard, but sleeping is great. I have great dreams, a lot of details, and just wonderful dialogue, original pieces of art, music, sensorama, food I can taste. It's terrific, better than the movies. So of course, you know, I want to sleep. But I'm in San Miguel, staying at an Airbnb in a very spiritual part of town that were the original uh, Manantiales, the original springs, where the original town was founded. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was wide awake. I turned on the light. I thought, what's this? What's going on? Well, I might as well meditate, because it's dark out. And before I could even start meditating, uh, a voice came in my head, it was not in English, it was not in Spanish, it just was a mental voice, and it said very clearly, you are not your house. Now that message, for anyone else, might have been confusing, but for me, I was involved with two foundations, I was expecting to leave my first home to the city of San Antonio, and working to make it a, a literary art center. Uh, we were planning the design of the garden for seven generations. We were so involved in everything except writing, and I was. And that statement, you are not your house, was like someone took a bucket of cold water. And I realized, oh, if I am not my house, 
I can leave. Yeah, <laughs> And the fact of leaving all of the, you know, the paperwork when you have a 501c3 or two of them. Oh, I said, so wonderful. I'm going to leave, and I'm moving to Mexico. So the first thing I did when I came back is I told my friends who were all the volunteers, guess what? I'm moving to Mexico. And I told them the story, and they said, no. The voice didn't tell you move to Mexico. It said you are not your house. I said, oh, that is so. Well, I'm going to finish this book in Mexico. And when I finish the book, then I'm going to investigate if I'm going to live in Tucson or Portland. I'll, I'll go. But it has to be somewhere. I think I need to be somewhere where there's an indigenous community. So by the time I finished the book, uh, everyone except me knew I was where I should be in San Miguel. And now uh, I want to move further south uh, to Oaxaca because that, that's more indigenous. The languages are intact. The culture is much more intact than where I live, where the tribes have forgotten their languages and their customs. So I think something keeps pulling me south and south and south. And uh, I feel I belong where there's indigenous people. I know my mother's people. Uh, my mother was 60-something percent. I'm 44 percent indigenous from tribes mm -hmm. far north as the border, Seti, all the way to Mayan and south. So something keeps calling me back. I think my work is one of communication. I hope of bridge building. I hope one of peacemaking. And I don't know why it called me to Mexico just yet. Uh, but whatever Mexico's future is, you know, I boy for whatever. How, you know? how long ago was that? Well, I had that moment that well, woke me up in 2013. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I moved. No, no. I moved in 2013. The voice came in 2011. That's right. Okay. So, and you, so you've been living there. Since 2013. Since 2013. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we need to kind of slowly draw to a close. This is school night. But um, who would think to move to a different country because a voice wakes you up in the middle of the night? <laughs> Only a loca like me, you know? <laughs> I think it sounds logical. No, if I thought of it, I'd have a great deal of doubt. <laughs> but it came right. from right. somewhere up there, and yeah. I'm not going to pretend I know who. <laughs> um, I do want to ask you, and you know, I should have, I, I meant to say this when we began to speak, if, if you just feel called to read anything, a poem or a piece of your writing, you don't have to, and it's kind of late, but. Well, I do want to say something. I feel that it's very important for all of us to uh, speak in this time and to be inspired by Elijah Cummings, who spoke in the language of justice. Mm, yes. He inspires me, and it's important for me to be here and to talk to all of you, because I feel this work is work of ministry. And I think the writing is work of ministry, but it's just as important to reach people that aren't going to come to the book. And so I want to thank you for allowing me this opportunity to do that ministry work. We're living in such dark times. I think of the quote of my mentor, Elena Poniatowska, when the student massacre happened in 68, and she wrote her book because she said she didn't want to be an accomplice to impotency. And I don't know how you feel at night, but I feel terrible that there are children that are separated from their parents and uh, one of the most vile chapters of our lifetimes that we're witnessing. And do we want to be accomplices to impotency? We have to do something. 
Something has to be done. And I hope that my speaking tonight will motivate each of you to write the planet, to, if you witness someone like that man at the Gold Coast hot dogs, <laughs> that you'll speak out or write a poem about it. You will do something positive, even if that means only treating everyone you meet tonight and tomorrow and the day after as human beings. I might read uh, something Adelante, I would love to hear you. Okay. Um, which follows on that. And I cannot remember where I found this, but you said, I don't know anything, but I know this. Whatever is done with love in the name of others without self-gain, whatever is done with the heart on behalf of someone or something, be it a child, animal, vegetable, rock, person, cloud, Whatever work we make with complete humility will always come out beautifully, and something more valuable than fame or money will come. This I know. Yes, House on Mango Street taught me that, and I share it with everyone. It, it's true. Some people do it with their students, some people with their children, but I wrote House when I was in a moment of powerlessness, and I think we feel that way now, but that's always us. Um, a sacred time when our heart is being broken. We're in a state of grace. We're being open to feel things deeply. And I think the United States is living with its heart split in two right now. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, the Sufis say God breaks the heart again and again until it stays open. So maybe we're living that time. Sandra Cisneros, thank you so much for your work and for being with us tonight. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you.